afternoon. How is everyone today? Yes, very lively here. It's like the progression of caffeine all morning long. So 8 o'clock is a little tired, you get a little bit at 10, and then here we are full, full tilt here at 11.30. So it is good to see you guys today. If you have your Bibles with you and you want to follow along, uh, Genesis chapter 33 is where we're going to be for the day. So um, I would encourage you to do so all, all morning long. We're going to keep kind of pointing back to it. So if you keep your Bibles open with me, um, that would be awesome. So um, this morning, as, as you turn there and, and get going, uh, this, this week I kind of went on a little research hunt. Um, I feel like as if we've been talking, especially in the past few weeks, um, a, a lot about, um, and, and I especially did this two weeks ago, talking about the idea and topic of self-help. Um, our, our culture right now, our world today, is obsessed with the idea of self-help. Um, it is one of the fastest growing industries in our country right now, in our culture today. Um, this is the research that I found that fascinated me so much. Really, in the past decade, the self-help industry has grown to be over a $10 billion, that's with a B and not an M, $10 billion industry. Um, and that's on the conservative side. It's probably much higher than that. And I mean, in fact, if you and I, again, went to Target today and just walked through the book section, you'll probably see, man, almost half of the books that you're going to find in the books, uh, on the bookshelves at Target are going to be around the self-help topic um, and, and content. And so the self-help industry is really fueled by a few things. They've got books, podcasts, websites, seminars, blogs, all sorts of things. And, and, and really, as I started to think about that, man, why is the self-help industry booming so much? And I, and I promise you this is going to connect to where we're going. Um, I started to ask the question, why is this industry booming so much in our country right now and in our culture today? Why is this industry so fastly uh, growing year after year? Well, the thing that I kind of thought through with that is I think this industry is growing so much because our culture today is starting to get in tune with the reality that something is actually wrong with us as people. Right? You don't need self-help if you don't need help. So the, the idea of you needing help says that, man, there is something wrong within us, something broken within us, something that needs to be changed. Now, um, as I thought through that more, though, I thought, okay, the self-help industry is growing. We're seeing all this stuff kind of take place. I think the better question we need to ask ourselves is, with this industry booming, why isn't it working? Why isn't it working? Because here's the reality. If we know that we need help, if we know we're broken, and all of this content has been poured out into telling you and I that you can fix you, something's not working because there has to be more content because the content that's already being made isn't doing the job. Well, the problem that I think we see, and none of us in this room will probably hear me be surprised to say this, um, the problem with the self-help industry is this. You and I were never going to be able to solve the greatest issues that we face in our lives. You and I are deeply flawed people. We have a world of issues, and we are very aware of that. The problem comes into the reality, when the reality settles in that though we are deeply flawed, guess what? There is nothing that we can do to actually bring about a lasting change in our own strength and effort. So the self-help industry is just this kind of weird cyclical effect of we're being preached that we need to help ourselves, yet we have the inability to do so. Now, Jacob, again, how this ties into today, we've been looking at Jacob's story in the book of Genesis for, for weeks now, and Really, he is like the uh, just perfect example of how self-help actually just leaves us more broken than we think. Um, Jacob, as we've seen over and over again, is a deeply flawed man. He has a world of issues. And so if you're here today and you have a world of issues, you are in good company, myself included. Jacob was there. 
a host of problems, a host of issues. And as we've seen throughout his story, anytime he tries to solve his own issues by his own efforts, it only gets worse for him. Anytime he, in his pride, in his flesh, thinks he's going to scheme a plan, he's going to come up with an idea that is going to save him, it never actually goes well for him. Right? But what we know about Jacob through his story is if Jacob was ever going to be deeply changed, he was going to have to have an encounter with grace that would actually be able to change him. He was going to have to have a moment that would actually transform him into being a different person. Uh, let me use an illustration to kind of bring us along here. Um, right now, we are five months away from Christmas, okay? Um, so I am excited, and if you're not, um, you can sit with the rest of the Scrooges out in the parking lot this afternoon, because <laughs> the rest of us are all excited. Christmas in July is here, and it's coming, so I figured no better way than to have a Christmas illustration. Um, the Grinch. Most of us are familiar with The Grinch, right? Whether you've read it, you've seen the movies or whatever. Now, I, I will argue this, and I got some pushback on this after the 8 o'clock. Uh, the Grinch that came out last year, the animated Grinch, is by far the best version of that movie ever. Way better than the Jim Carrey version. So um, I'll be outside taking people to task on that if you need to afterwards, all right? Um, so Jim Carrey's ver- not, not nearly as good. Anyways, the Grinch, the same story over and over again. Th- there's a reason why I think the Grinch story resonates so much in our culture today, and, and this is why. Um, the Grinch is a man. I don't know if he's a man. I really struggle with words for this. He is a green being who is deeply flawed, We know that from his story. Um, The poor dude lives in the most Christmassy town on the planet, and he hates Christmas, right? And and so what you see as the story opens is a picture of this guy who is just so angry, so hard, and so upset about Christmas that he wants to steal it away from the people who love it so much. So as the story goes, and we, we know how this all kind of unfolds, he makes this plan to steal Christmas away from the people, and he does that. He takes away all the gifts, all the decorations, all the stuff, goes back up to his, like, hill mountain thing, and it's something interesting this is why I love this story he has this moment of transformation that happens as soon as he steals Christmas he thinks that when all the people in Whoville wake up and they see that all of their stuff is gone that they're going to be upset they're going to be frustrated all of that well he gets up to the top of the hill he knows they've just gotten up and as he gets to the hill he listens and he hears the people of Whoville singing a song And so he walks up on the top of the mountain, peers over with his dog Max, and he looks down and he sees that the people of Whoville are not actually upset and broken, but they're instead still celebrating and singing Christmas songs, whatever song it was, uh, together there in in Whoville that day. Now, this is what I love about the Grinch story, and this is why I think it resonates. The Grinch had a moment that changed his life forever. He hears what's happening down there. He sees the joy of the people, And we know his heart was two sizes too small. And upon seeing what they were doing, his heart is immediately transformed. Again, he didn't help himself. He was changed and transformed by a moment of watching those people. And then we see that he takes all the Christmas stuff back down to the people, gives it back in full full gift, and then he also apologizes to them. Now, why do I go through all that? Jacob was in need of a transformational moment of that same variety. And last week, what we saw in Genesis chapter 32, if you were here, and if you weren't, I'll give you the quick details. In Genesis 32, Jacob, at the end of the chapter, has this moment, this really a transformational moment where he wrestles with God that evening. And that moment for Jacob was a moment that was going to leave him forever changed. 
That moment where he encountered God's grace was going to be a moment that would leave him as a different man from that point forward throughout the rest of his life. And from what last week that we need to see for this week, I want you to see this together with me. Um, What we see from Jacob's story in 32 is this, is that God's grace is the only way to be deeply changed. God's grace is the only way to be deeply changed. Uh, This is why this matters. In a world that is screaming to all of us that you can fix you, the gospel is screaming out to us that only God can fix you. And this is the very heart of the gospel that Jesus then came to pay for our sin, to die in our place, to to live in our place, to die in our place, and to rise from the dead for us. And upon you and I encountering the grace that we find in the gospel, not only are we forgiven of sin, but it doesn't stop there. We're also being transformed. See, when the grace of God gets a hold of someone, it does not leave them where they were. It's going to change them forever, and that's what we see in Jacob's story in chapter 32. So as we open up to chapter 33 today, and this is really important to see because what we're going to talk about today in 33 is we're going to talk about the characteristics of gospel change that are brought about in the life of Jacob. The characteristics of change that come from a man who's encountered the grace of God. But it is important for us to see that these changes that we're going to talk about today don't come by our own efforts, but instead they come by you and I being radically transformed by the grace and mercy of God alone. Before we read this, I was thinking yesterday, um, I always like to think about, like, when we're preaching, who is this text going to be really good news for today? Who is this text going to be like, man, as we read this story of Jacob's just transformation after he's encounters God's grace, who in the room is just going to hopefully walk out wildly encouraged because they are walking through this right now? Well, I think if you are in the room today and you are someone who is so self-sufficient and so self-reliant and so self-dependent, this text is going to be really, really good news for you today. And let me tell you, I stand here as the foremost, and I think if we're all honest with ourselves for just a few minutes, we all stand in that place where we are people who are self-dependent, we're self-reliant, we're self-sufficient far more than we would ever like to admit And for a whole bunch of self-sufficient people, this text is going to be great news. But I also think it's going to be great news if you're here today and in, in your heart of hearts, man, you are so broken because you are tired of struggling with the same sin and the same failures over and over and over again. First off, Jesus welcomes you here. And second off, I think this text is going to be really good news for us today. All right. So if you have your Bibles with you, Genesis 33, we'll start in verse 1. We're going to read the first 11 verses together. The text starts and it says, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and he saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? And Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. And Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I have met? And Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, 
I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. We'll pause there for just a moment and pick back up the story in a few minutes. Um, This is really important for us to see. What's been interesting is while James has been gone, we've been kind of looking at one uh, progressing narrative over the past few weeks. Uh, and, And the narrative has really centered around this moment right here. Um, We know, basing on a couple of weeks ago, as Jacob heard that Esau was coming to him, he was absolutely terrified of the meeting that was going to take place. And we remember seeing the fear that existed within Jacob's life because he was afraid of the 400 men with Esau who were coming to him. Again, so we have Jacob who was terrified, and then last week in 32, God meets Jacob in his desperation, in his fear, wrestles with him, pops his hip out of place to remind him that he is to be dependent and desperate upon God alone. And then we open up the story into this part of our text to where we're going to find Jacob with this meeting with Esau. And what I want to do is I want to show you again, based off of the transformational encounter with the grace of God that Jacob had in Genesis chapter 32, I want to show you three characteristics of change in someone who has encountered God's grace. I'm going to show you three characteristics of change. They're true for Jacob, and by God's grace, we want these things to be true of us as well. So number one, the first change that we see within Jacob, a characteristic of gospel change, is that we become dependent on God and not self. Dependent on God and not self. Um, Again, it's it's Jacob, and this is kind of, and we need to make sure we see this when we see this text. When when Genesis 33 opens up, and Jacob, it says that Jacob looked up and beheld Esau was coming with 400 men with him. Now, I want to remind us that we've just seen the full outcome, but where we find Jacob as we open the chapter, um, there is probably still room for a ton of fear as we open up this story. Because Jacob still, even though he's just encountered the grace of God, he still does not know why 401 men are coming across the land, making their way to him. Um, For all he knows, they're still coming. They want to kill him. They want to take his possessions, take his family, whatever it is. And so he's looking out. He still doesn't know what's going to come. But I want to show you that through this text that we begin to see a shift in Jacob because if you remember last time Jacob was afraid, he ran into his own flesh, he ran to his own strength, and he began to make all of these plans to sort of appease Esau, hide from Esau, and run from him. But as we open up chapter 33, he looks, he sees Esau coming, he sees 400 men coming, and in the face of what he could perceive to be danger, he lines his family up, he walks to the front of the line, And he goes to meet his brother. And so what you're seeing is the old Jacob that was scheming and deceptive, the one that had all of these plans he was always cooking up. He wasn't sitting around trying to make plans anymore. He puts himself in the front of the line. He's going to go meet his brother. And and I want to show you that when he is doing this, in in the understanding that they could actually kill him, he is walking in the front of that line, not running anymore, because he is now depending on the Lord and not his own strength. There's been this moment of change where all the schemes, all the plans, they're no longer going to help. He, in his heart of hearts, knows, I'm going to walk up there, I'm going to meet Esau, and I'm going to walk in confidence that God is with me, and I'm going to leave my flesh to the side. 
And as he's walking forward, he is trusting in the Lord every step of the way. Um, For you and I here today, one of the greatest things that God can do in our lives, one of the kindest things that God can do in your life and in my life is to show us that we are not as awesome as we think we are. We are not nearly as awesome as we think we are because we think we're pretty awesome. I think I'm pretty awesome. I say that arrogantly. I may not say it, but my life shows that to be the case. Right? We may not walk around saying, man, I'm the, I'm the smartest dude in the world. Or I've got all the great plans in the world, but our life will so display that over and over and over again. Over and over, we treat life as if we got it under control. And one of the greatest things that God can do to us, one of the kindest things he could do is to show you that you are not in control like you think you are. You are not as strong as you think you are. And you are actually more desperate and dependent upon him than you could ever even imagine. Um, My four-month-old daughter, anytime now that I can drop a reference about my daughter in a sermon, I am all in and I'm going to do it. So um, my my four-month-old daughter, if I stood up here today and told you that my four-month-old daughter is completely independent, she is self-sufficient in her own strength, and she can handle life on her own right now, um, doesn't need my wife or me, you would call defects on me, and I would have some visitors this afternoon. You would think I'm insane, right? Because for me to stand up and say my four-month-old daughter doesn't need me is absurd, and all of us know it. She couldn't make it a day without us. I want to put forward to you that it is just as absurd when we treat God as if we don't need him. As insane as it is to say my four-month-old daughter doesn't need me, as insane as it is for me to act that way, it is just as absurd, if not more so, for you and I to treat the Lord as if we don't actually need him. Can I tell you that one of the greatest marks of maturity in the Christian life is not you growing more independent, it is you growing more dependent on the Lord. Find me a man, find me a woman that walks in independence of the Lord and claims to be mature, and I will show you someone who is immature. But you find me someone who in their humility knows that I need God desperately. I am hopeless without him. I have nothing apart from him. You find me that man, and I'll say that is a mature man because we need him. It's exactly why Jesus says in John chapter 15 that apart from him, we can do nothing. And so our lives are spent battling this fight to want to be independent, to want to try to make a name for ourselves, want to try to do things on our own. When God is inviting us back to him to say, man, why don't you just come and trust in me? And that is the invitation from Jesus this morning, that you and I would be people who grow in our desperation and our dependence upon him every step of the way. All right, the second uh, characteristic of change, of gospel change that we see in Jacob's life is, is this A recognition of God's faithfulness, not our own works. The second characteristic of change that you're going to see in Jacob's story is a recognition of God's faithfulness and not our own works. Um, What you're going to notice multiple times throughout Genesis chapter 33 is that there seems to be this change that's being brought in Jacob's heart where he is finally starting to understand that all of the success, all of the blessing, all of the goodness that has been poured out to him was not his own doing but was in fact from the Lord himself. And there's three different instances where you can see this. Um, In verse 5, Jacob recognizes that his family and all of his possessions are a gift from God. 
He recognizes all, as Esau asked him, who are all these people? What's all this stuff that's going on here? Jacob recognizes that you see all these people? God has blessed me. This is my family that God has given me. Um, the second thing, and this one may have caught a couple of you off guard in the text, it did for me at first, is in verse 10. Um, Jacob makes this really strange comment when he sees Esau, where he says, seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. Now, when I read that this week, I thought that is the most strange thing to say, like, hey, brother, I saw you, and you look just like the Lord. Um, here's what he really meant by that. Here, here's what that, that phrase really means. Um, Jacob knows that he has just wrestled with the Lord the night before, and he didn't die. That God had met him in his grace and didn't kill him. He popped his hip out of place and left him changed forever, but he didn't kill him, he didn't die. And what's happening is Jacob is walking up and he sees Esau and he realizes that Esau is not going to kill him. He is having this moment of recognition where he knows that the same God that spared him the night before is the same God who is delivering him right now. In all of the fear that he was anticipating with Esau, he is standing there as a delivered man and knows the deliverance belongs to God. That he didn't do this. God did this. And then lastly, the third place that you'll see this is in verse 11 where Jacob recognizes that God is the one who has been incredibly kind, incredibly gracious, and incredibly faithful to him throughout all of his years, even when he didn't deserve to be. Now, um, you and I, as people, do a really good job at taking credit for good things and trying to blame shift all of the bad things, don't we? Um, if you work in an office setting, you're going to know this to be true. Um, if you're working on a team project around your office or with your coworkers, when somebody messes something up, it's dude down the hall's fault, right? He did this, right? It's his fault. We would have been fine if, if it wasn't for that dude, right? He, he did all of this. But when something goes well, we did it. Right, yeah, the project went good. We made a bunch of money. It's because I was doing it. You know, we, we kind of treat things that way. I do this with my wife all the time. Um, if I'm walking around and I like stub my toe on a piece of furniture, I will somehow find a way to blame her for that the, out of just my sheer anger and frustration in the moment. Like, why did you move this piece of furniture? And she's like, honey, it's been sitting there for 10 years, man. It hasn't moved, right? It's my fault, but we, we, we always find a way to blame shift. We do this with the Lord, though, too. When things are going well, we act as if we did it. Money's coming in okay. Family's doing well. Everybody seems to be in a good place in life. All these things are kind of happening. We're in, we're in good health. And we're in good health because we eat good and we work out. Or we, we make money because we're smart. And we got the promotion. And we did this and we did this. And yeah, life's going well, man. I, I seem to be doing pretty good for myself. If things are going well, it's because we accomplished it. But the moment something goes wrong, God did it. The moment something doesn't go the way that we wanted it to, God, why didn't you bail me out? And what we're seeing with Jacob is that one of the things that the Lord wants to do within us is to shift within us this tendency to take credit for everything. And so what, what God wants to do in our hearts is get us to the point where we understand that every single thing that we have is only because God did it. The money we have, the family we have, the health we have, the job we have, the home we have, every bit of gifting, every bit of ability, every single thing that we have in our lives is because God is the one who did it. So that's why in the church, there should be no place for pride and walking with a swagger and kind of a lean to us. 
There is no room for us as a church to come in and say, yeah, I'm better than at least those people that sit on the aisle next to me. Because look at what I do, man. I read my Bible six times a day. Or I give more than everybody else. There's no room for pride or arrogance or walking like that within the church because all of us, as you mature in your faith, you understand that every good thing that I have has come from God. Like, even the gifts that we have, even the abilities that I have. Like, if you, if you park cars, man, you know you get to say I'm the best car parker in the world because God is the one who gave it to you. Every single thing that we have has come from him. And one of the views of someone who has encountered the grace of God is there is a shift in understanding where we begin to get aware that I don't deserve anything, but God has been kind to me. God has been gracious to me. God has given me more than I could ever deserve, ever ask for. He has been so good to us. That's why you and I walk with some, we ought to walk in sort of this amazement of God's kindness to our lives because we know we don't deserve it. All right, the third thing, third, third characteristic of gospel change that we're going to see within Jacob's life and his story is we see that he is making peace and not dissension. He is making peace and not dissension. Um, when, when we see the story again, there are two moments in Genesis 33, in these first 11 verses, where we see this idea of making peace and not dissension come on full display. Um, number one, the, the moment where Jacob is bowing, waiting for Esau to come, and the story takes this beautiful turn where it shows that Esau comes running to him, he embraces him, kisses him, they weep together. I, I, I want you to see just how beautiful of a moment this is where these two brothers who have legitimate strife and turmoil, they should, in the world's ways, hate each other. And they have this reunion and they come together and they are weeping and crying and holding one another. It is this beautiful moment of reconciliation where even for Esau, Esau comes and he gives Jacob a tremendous amount of forgiveness right here in this moment. And Jacob, I love that he doesn't stop with just a quick little embrace. Jacob goes back to Esau and he, said, he, he knows that he's stolen from him. He knows he's tricked him and deceived him out of his blessing and the birthright and all of those things. Jacob, in that moment, goes to him and says, hey, all this stuff, I want to give this to you. He wanted to make up for what he had wronged him out of. So he says, I'm going to give this to you. And Esau, I, I, I love what Esau's response is. He's like, I, I don't need it. I'm fine. I'm well taken care of. And Jacob is adamant. He knows he's taken it from him. He is going to return it back to his brother. All right, now true or false um, our world is filled with dissension and not peace. True. That is true. I don't know what world you're living in if that answer is not true. You're in a different place, okay? True. True that our world is a place that is filled with dissension. If you turn on the news for more than five minutes, you can't see anything other than that. Everything in our world today is screaming that all people should be divided at all times, most of the time, for no reason. We want to fight and scream and steal and argue and say, I'm smarter than you, or our views are better than you, our politics are better than you, we're smarter than you, we have more money than you, whatever it is, everything in our world is screaming and moving for dissension and not peace. But I think we would be insane if we treat this as if this is just a cultural problem and not an in-the-church problem as well. I am convinced that we have just as great of an issue of causing dissension instead of working for peace in the church just like the rest of the world. 
I mean, I love our church. We are not that awesome at this. But quite frankly, I don't know that many that are. Every Christian church, and we need to improve in this area. We need to fight for being people who are known for making peace and not dissension. Listen to what Jesus says about this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. What I love about this and what we're seeing in Jacob and Esau's story is really what is at the core of the gospel message. I want to show you that peacemaking is at the very heart of the gospel itself. And here's what I mean by this. The, The message of the gospel is that God has made a way of peace for his enemies. God has his enemies, which would have been all of us according to the book of Ephesians, as we've rebelled against him. And God, instead of leaving his enemies where they were by themselves, left to their rebellion, comes to make peace with them, comes to save them, comes to save us. It's at the very heart of the gospel. And Jesus is saying here, if you are in my family, if you're in my kingdom, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, I need you to see that that says peacemakers and not just peacekeepers. We don't just keep the peace where we can. Jesus is saying that to be a Christian means that peacemaking is who we are. It's what we do. We pursue reconciliation. We pursue peace with others. We pursue forgiveness and grace and mercy extended freely towards others because we understand that God has dealt that way with us. As I was thinking about this, I I thought that there should be no more unique place on planet Earth than the church of Jesus. There should be no place on our planet more unique than people being welcomed into the family of Jesus. And here's why. What other place in the world can you go to where a group of people actually forgive their enemies with no strings attached? What other place can you go to where the very people who ridicule us are the very ones that we want to invite into the family? What other place can you go to where the brothers and sisters that make up the family actually confess their sins to one another? And what other place can you go to on earth where grace is so freely extended, where reconciliation should always be pursued? There is no other place like that other than the church of Christ. That is why Jesus says in Matthew on the Sermon on the Mount, that the church is going to be like a city on a hill that shines brightly for the world to see because there ought to be a distinction about you and I as the people of God in how we see one another and how we treat the world. Here's here's the reality. Peacemaking should not feel uncomfortable for us, and I'm afraid that it does because it is so foreign for us. And as a church, I pray and hope that we grow in the ability to confess with one another, to pursue reconciliation with one another. Like, we shouldn't have to be the people that sit on opposite side of the room because we know who's sitting on the other side. We should be those people that before we come in, man, we are pursuing reconciliation every step of the way. This is what the gospel does. Now, as we finish up this portion of Genesis 33, um, we're, we're going to read the rest of the chapter. And what I want to do is I want to ask a question before we continue reading together that I want you to think about as we read this next. Um, okay, so we've seen that Jacob was transformed because of an encounter with the grace of God. He is now a different man, and we see those three characteristics that show us this is a different dude because he has met the grace of God. But does that mean that Jacob was perfect from this point forward? 
Does that mean that the old man didn't try to sneak back up again at times throughout his life? Uh, Pick back up in verse 33, verse 12, and we'll read together and see the answer to that. The text says, then Esau said, and he's saying to Jacob, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herd are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children, and listen to this, until I come to my Lord in Seir. And so Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, but hear this, but Jacob journeyed to Succoth, and he built himself a house and made booths for his livestock, and therefore the, play, the, the name of that place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. And there he erected an altar, and he called it El Elohi Israel. Um, Spoiler alert, if you didn't catch it throughout that text, um, Jacob wasn't perfect. And the old man was still going to come back in battle. This is one of those moments where it's like you want to shake him and think, what in the world is wrong with you? Um, When when I moved to Bartow County, um, I got into hunting for the first time. A friend of mine down here actually started getting me into uh, hunting for the first time. I've never been hunting a day in my life. Um, And and if you hunt, if you've ever been hunting, this is going to make a lot of sense to you. Um, When you go hunting, especially for deer, what you do is you get up into a tree or whatever your method of choice is, and you sit there quietly all day long hoping one of these deer is going to sneak out of the woods and you're going to be able to finish whatever you do with hunting. I don't want to... I don't want to offend anyone in the room today, okay? Um, so, <laughs> so, so you're waiting for this deer to come out. And, and this is what's amazing about this. When a deer comes, I, I mean, if you even swallow too loud, that thing is going to s- just take off through the woods and you've missed your moment. And what's amazing about it, you have to sit there so quietly waiting for that moment to come. And if you're too loud, he's going to be so skittish and run away. And these are the very same animals that try to cross I-75. <laughs> Seriously. You think about that for a minute. The loudest interstate in the world and these same animals that are totally skittish try to cross the street and we know how that ends as well. It's not good. And and I think about animals like that and I'm like, this is infuriating. This is frustrating that they would do that to me and and then do this. This is one of those moments for Jacob where it's like, oh my goodness, how do you do this? Oh my goodness, how do you go back to your old ways? Oh my goodness, how do you let that happen? But then the more I think about Jacob's story, the more I think, I am not above this. And you are not above this. As much as we think we're just going to be these perfect people, that I'm never going to struggle with those old ways anymore. I'm never going to fall back into that old thing anymore. The reality is, and we know ourselves too well, that we get a little bit prideful, we get a little bit arrogant, and we begin to fall. Because we're trusting in our own strength again. There are two moments that I want you to notice in Jacob's story where the old man starts to come back up. Esau, as they're getting ready to leave, says, hey, I'm going to go on my way to Seir. You guys come with me. And Jacob says, uh, well, uh, yeah, we're, we're coming, but the, you know, the, the, the children are frail. We've got all the livestock, so we're going to be slower than you. So you go ahead to Seir, and then we'll catch up with you. We'll, we'll be right behind you. We're on the way. 
And what we see is that as Esau leaves and makes his way to Seir, Jacob had zero intentions whatsoever of actually following along and going to Seir. Now, part of that is commendable. Part of it is commendable because Jacob knows that God didn't call him to go to Seir. He called him to go back to the land. And so him not following Esau is somewhat commendable. And all Jacob had to do was say, hey, I can't do that because God's called me here. This is where we're going. But instead of being truthful with his brother, once again, you have Jacob the schemer coming back into the story, the old man at play, where he deceives his brother once again. And so Esau, knowing that he's probably lying, goes on his way. And now this one's even more fascinating to me as we see this part of his story. Jacob then goes on his way, and we know from a previous chapter that God, when he called him to go, he called him to go back to Bethel. But in the text, it shows that Jacob actually stopped short and he settled in a place called Shechem. Now that is incredibly significant because that means that Jacob, though he got close, didn't actually walk in full obedience to the Lord. Shechem was about 20 miles away from Bethel. But instead of following God 100% to where he had called him to go, he stopped just short. And that goes to show us that the battle for full obedience is going to last a lifetime. The battle for full obedience for you and I in the room today is going to last a lifetime. I was thinking about Jacob stopping short about 20 miles away from where God had called him to be. And and what's amazing about this is though we don't see it now, when you turn the chapter to 34, and we'll see it in just two weeks from now, the decision from Jacob to stop 20 miles short from going all the way to Bethel was going to cause havoc in his family. And if you want to read ahead a little bit in 34, you can see what I'm talking about this week. It was going to cause chaos in his life. And it's because he did not walk in full obedience to the Lord. He got close, but he didn't get all the way there. And as I was thinking about that, I thought, man, how often do you and I do that very same thing? Maybe it's not stopping 20 miles short of where God's calling us to, but how often do we find ourselves giving about 90% obedience to the Lord but holding back the other 10? Like, God, I know you're calling me to be generous with my money and my time, and what if I give you this much and keep the rest for me? Or like, God, I know you're calling me to go to this place or to leave this relationship or to do that thing or to share the gospel with this person. Um, What if I do this much? What if I go this far? But we kind of hold back from that full obedience that we know the Lord is calling us to. We do this all the time. Where we get so close and we start to bargain with the Lord and we think we can trust him but then still kind of keep some back for ourselves. See, what's amazing to me about Jacob is Jacob is at his best throughout his life when he is at his weakest. Jacob is at his absolute best throughout his entire story when he is at his weakest. It's every moment where Jacob puts uh, his trust into himself and thinks he is strong that things are going to come crashing down on him. When our story opens in 33... Again, Jacob just wrestled with God, and if you remember, God popped his hip out of place. So here you have Jacob, who's now walking with a permanent limp to remember that I ought to be dependent on the Lord alone. 
And as the story opens and he goes to meet his brother Esau, I love the, the way that we can kind of see this. He gets in the front of the line. He walks out. Here you have Jacob limping forward to his brother, bowing down in all humility. He understands that, man, I, am, I must be dependent on the Lord right now. There is no other way. And it's when Jacob is walking in humility, it's when he's walking with that limp, when he is at his weakest, that he's actually at his best. Because it's when Jacob's weak that God is strong. It's when Jacob is humble that the Lord shines through. But it's when Jacob gets proud of himself again, where he puffs his chest out a little bit and thinks he's got it under control. Where he says, I think I can help the Lord a little bit in this area. Like, God, I know you're calling me here, but let me, let me also help you out just a little bit. That is every moment where things go wrong for him. And you and I today, nothing is different for us. We are going to be at our best when we are walking in a tremendous amount of weakness. When we understand that we are not as special as we like to think we are, we are not as awesome as we like to think we are, we don't have it figured out like we think we do. We're not smart enough. We don't have enough intellect. We don't have enough wisdom. But we understand that God does. That's when we're at our best. And as a church, my hope for us is that from anything, if we take anything from Jacob, it's that we as a church understand that we need to grow in humility. We need to grow in weakness. Then we need to put all pride to the side, all arrogance to the side, and say, God, we need you. Because the reality is today, as a church, we will be completely ineffective in our world today and completely robbed of all joy if we walk out of the rooms with our chest puffed up thinking we've got this thing under control. But you find me a church that puts their hope, their trust, their strength in Christ alone and that is a church that Jesus will use. Let's pray together now and close. Father, we thank you for allowing us to be just weak people because we know, God, we need you. And God, we come together as a church today and we confess that we need you to break us of our pride and our arrogance and our egos and all of those sorts of things. And would you cause us to be people who walk with a deep amount of humility and trust in you alone. Father, I pray that you would encourage us today for all who are struggling in sin, for all who feel beaten down, for all who feel weary this morning. Would you encourage us in the gospel and remind us that Jesus is sufficient for us? Help remind us of how great your grace is, how deep your love is, and how much your affection is for us as your children. Father, we thank you for everything you're doing in our lives right now. We pray today in Christ's name. Amen.